Well, we are doing a short series uh, right now called Beyond, and we started this last Sunday. Today, we'll do the second installment. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 9. The book of Acts, chapter 9. And I wonder, do any of you have a hard time ever saying no? Do any of you have a hard time saying no? For how many of you is it easier to say yes than to say no? Does anyone have FOMO? Fear of missing out. <laughs> I was talking to an introvert, and they said, no, I don't have FOMO. I have phobia, fear of being included. <laughs> I can relate to that sometimes. But is it easier for you to say yes than to say no? Um, they, they say that that if you're going to add more and more and more to your already overflowing to-do list or your plate, you have to take something else off. So are you good at taking things off or are you more of the, yes, yes, sure, no problem, until you just kind of fold under the pressure? Um, every great yes requires a no. When I said yes to Jessica, I said no to any other romantic relationship. When I said yes to this particular calling, I was saying no to other life paths. Um, if I want to say yes to increased physical health and fitness, I have to say no to other lifestyle practices and certain choices. You know, I, I'm really intrigued right now with some things that I'm seeing with some of the younger generations, with uh, millennials and Gen Z. There's some really fascinating things happen. Um, from a sociological perspective, we're starting to see trends and movements of this young generation specifically saying no to some things so they can say yes to other things. And, and specifically, the millennials are fueling a movement right now of saying no to alcohol abuse. There's actually movements happening in millennials right now for dry months and dry communities and sober bars. And, and another thing I'm seeing is in millennials and Gen Z specifically, these young people are fueling movements right now to try and help people get free from the grip of pornography. It's really fascinating. Some of the most outspoken powerful movements, and they're not religious movements necessarily, but movements to free people um, from addictions to pornography are coming from young people who grew up with the internet in their back pocket. And so some of these young people are realizing that, wait a minute, the, the, the allure and the enticement that we were promised hasn't delivered the way we thought, and it's actually damaged um, my mental health in some ways. And so it's really intriguing to see young people saying no to one thing so that they can say yes to something that's healthier. Um, Madeline Joy, our youngest daughter, is in that generation. And I want to show you her most recent Instagram picture. If, if you can read it back there, I'm not sure, but she's, she's, first of all, I don't know why she's sitting on the edge of a cliff taking this picture. I wasn't asked about that, but but the, the caption there is, peace out, Instagram. And she, she decided to say no to social media. And Jessica and I, we were actually really sad about that because her, she's so creative and her posts are awesome. We love following her. But um, Amanda, our worship pastor, did the same thing. 
A while back, she decided to log off of all of social media for a while. Amanda has been writing songs. In fact, she's recorded some of her songs. Uh, Madeline is writing a book. She wants to write a book from her generation's perspective on relationships. And, and so it's fascinating to see young people realizing, I have to say no to this if I want to say yes to this. You know, um, anything creative, anything contributive requires a no. No one writes poetry or symphonies or helps their child with homework or invests in the life of a young foster student unless they're willing to say no to other things. In fact, I think the success of a life, no matter how we categorize success, probably comes down to our yeses and our noes. What do we say yes to with our life and what do we say no to? See, you can't have one without the other. They're the flip side of the same coin. Every yes is a no, and every no has a corresponding yes. Um, in Acts chapter 9, Saul the Pharisee, Saul the persecutor of the New Testament church, encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul was on his way to the city of Damascus hunting Christians when this brilliant light flashed around him. It actually blinded him for three days, and he saw Jesus. When the lights went off around him, the lights went on inside him, and he encountered his yes. He experienced his, his purpose, and he discovered the reason that he was put on this planet. Um, here's how Jesus described Paul in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. The scripture says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. This man is my chosen instrument. Um, other translations say he's my chosen vessel. And listen, God has chosen you to do some things too. In Jeremiah 1 verse 5, God said to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before Eli and Theodore were formed in the womb, God knew them. Before you were born, I set you apart. That was God speaking to Jeremiah. Here's David speaking to God in Psalm 139, 13. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And if that was true for David and Jeremiah, it's also true for you. Um, Acts 10.34 says that God does not show favoritism. If Jeremiah and David came into this world prepackaged with a purpose... If they arrived on the scene enveloped in a destiny, you have been too. And one of the things that you've been called to do, not, all, not, not the only thing, one of the things that we have been shaped and fashioned to do as believers in Jesus is to talk to people 
who do not know Jesus yet about the Lord. In fact, Jesus' final words in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, so right before his ascension, so at the very end of his ministry, this is how Jesus left it. His final words were this. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, it's really interesting the word witness in the New Testament is the exact same Greek word that we translate martyr. The word witness and the word martyr are both the Greek word martus. Fascinating that, that those two are, are tied together. See, throughout church history, the martyrs have reminded us that the purpose of the church is not to survive, it's to serve. The purpose of the church is not to survive history. It's to serve humanity. Our goal in life is to give our lives away in some form of service and then die in the right direction. The martyrs weren't always successful in everything they tried to do, but they died facing the right direction. And so as a church, we've been called to give our lives away to identify our unique shape for ministry and then give it all until we're done and we're pointing in the right direction. So what we're doing in this little series, this will just be a little short series. There's a few things I want us to think about at the start of the new year. We're looking at just a few moments from the Apostle Paul's first missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. So you could scoot forward in your Bibles to Acts 13. Um, Paul took three missionary journeys all the famous, crazy, miraculous stuff that you read about in Acts happened during these trips. And we're calling this series Beyond because we're trying to stretch ourselves to say yes to some things that will move us beyond the trivial. We're trying to say yes to some things that will move us beyond just filling time or wasting time to actually investing time in things that actually matter most. One of the things that actually matters most, in fact, the thing that matters most is people, and specifically people that, that Jesus loved enough to give his life for. So in Acts 13, here's what we saw last week. There was a worship service happening in a city called Antioch. About 13 years after Jesus had been crucified, rose from the dead, and the New Testament church began, um, there was a group of people having a worship service in a place called Antioch. And while they were worshiping, verse 2 says, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So this is the launch of the famous Apostle Paul's ministry. And when they left Antioch, the very first place they went was the Mediterranean island of Cyprus. And why did they go to Cyprus? Well, they went to Cyprus because we learned from scriptures that Barnabas was from Cyprus. So Cyprus was his hometown. So when they're in this incredible worship service, and by the way, we had a night of worship last Sunday that was so good. It was so special. But they were in a service like that. They're worshiping, they're fasting, they're praying. People are, are giving words that they think are from the Holy Spirit. 
Paul and Barnabas get launched, very first stop, home. They decided if we're going to go on the mission field with this message, we want to go home. And so they went to Barnabas' home. And while they were there, they met a man named Sergius Paulus. And hold on to this name today, Sergius Paulus. He was the Roman proconsul, so he was the Roman delegated leader of the island of Cyprus. He had an advisor named Bar-Jesus, the son of Joshua, who was a sorcerer. And there was this powerful confrontation, this conflict, this interaction with Paul and the sorcerer, and Sergius Paulus became a Christian. He became a convert. And, and then right after this moment, um, the scripture says in verse 13, from Paphos, that was on Cyprus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. Now, this is a different Antioch than the Antioch that they were sent out from. A lot of these cities were named after Roman rulers, as this was, a Greek ruler. Um, and for a long time, scholars could not figure out why they went from Cyprus to Pisidian Antioch. And I know we read this today and we're like, who cares? I don't know any of these places. But, 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 but this is important and it has baffled people because Pisidian Antioch was, would be kind of like, actually, I don't want to do this. I'll let you do this. Think of a city that you would never want to visit. Don't say it out loud. Think of a place that you would never vacation there. That's what Pisidian Antioch would have been. In its day, it was, it was not a glamorous vacation destination. Now, there were those places nearby. Ephesus was nearby. Ephesus was the premier cosmopolitan, amazing, educated, rich city. Ephesus had one of the seven wonders of the world, the, the temple to Diana in, in its limits. Ephesus was amazing. Ephesus would have been the place that if you're going to launch a ministry to change the world, you do not go to Pisidian Antioch, you go to Ephesus. So scholars could not figure this out. Why would they start there? But then, as it it so often happens with the Bible. And this is really helpful for people who maybe are a little suspicious of the Bible or how do I trust this stuff? As it almost always happens, there was a discovery. A number of years ago, there was an archaeological dig in Pisidian Antioch. And this stone was uncovered. Now, I know we don't read that language, but this stone has the name Sergius Paulus on it. Remember, they met Sergius Paulus in Cyprus, but then they went to Pisidian Antioch and they find this stone with his name on it. I told you last Sunday, and I showed you the picture, that in Cyprus, another discovery had been made and they found a stone with the name Sergius Paulus listed as the proconsul. So we know, whether we, we can't prove things that happened in ancient times, but we know that there was an archaeological discovery that verified that there was indeed a Roman proconsul named Sergius Paulus in Cyprus. Are you with me? And then the guys go to Pisidian Antioch and they find another stone. Let's put that back up there again. And they believe that this particular stone was like the label or the entrance to an estate. So Sergius Paulus owned property in Pisidian Antioch. And if he owned property there, it means he probably had family there. So scholars are now saying, oh, I get it. Okay, Sergius Paulus becomes a convert. 
God changes his life, and then he says, Barnabas, Paul, if you're going to head out and go around the world, would you please swing by Pisidian Antioch? Would you please take this message of this love story, this romance, this, this healing, this life, uh, would you tell my cousins about it? Would you tell my nephew about it? Would you please tell my family about this Jesus? And the apostle Paul said, yes. And so that was their very next stop. And, and here's kind of what went down in Pisidian Antioch. In verse 16 again, on the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and they sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them saying, brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. And the apostle Paul was like, actually, I do. In fact, this is exactly why I came to your city. And so the apostle Paul stood up, motioned with his hand and said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. And then the Apostle Paul goes on to preach a sermon. 25 verses of this chapter, and I won't read all of those right now, tell us what his sermon was. He started with Moses, and then he took, or Moses and Abraham, he took the story through King David and his lineage, and he brought it all the way to Jesus and what Jesus Christ means for you. And, um, and, and then in verse 42, you can drop down to the end of that chapter. In verse 42, this is right after Paul preaches his sermon. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath, so the next Friday night. Um, when the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they speak in the synagogue. They're told to come back to the next, for the next Sabbath, all week long, people are talking to them. Hey, can I get together with you? Hey, there, can we run down to Sanctuary Coffee? By the way, all the people that were from the former Baseline Coffee or Baseline Church, thank you for introducing me to Sanctuary. I'd never been there until we did our little church merge, and now I'm an annoying regular. But, um, but can we get coffee? Can we go out? Hey, can you meet me before work? All week long, the people are talking to Paul and Barnabas until verse 44 says, on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's pretty amazing. I'll share a few words of exhortation in this little synagogue in Claremont, and then next week, the entire city of Claremont, the entire area of Laverne and Upland, the whole 210 corridor shows up. That's pretty awesome. Except that when a small synagogue that usually only draws a few people suddenly has a stranger speak and the entire city shows up, Verse 45 says, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what Paul was saying, and they heaped abuse on him. This continues for several verses, and then in verse 49, it says, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. But verse 52 says that the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So a couple of evangelism observations here. As we set out to try and 
go home or to try and talk to our neighbor or talk to people at work, if, if, if we really believe that something has changed our life and that something is a someone, if, if we're really going to try to do this, just a couple of observations. Number one, we have to go to the people. We have to go to the people. Almost every incredible event in the Apostle Paul's life happened when he went to people. I mean, when was the last time your coworkers banded together and said, hey, I, we heard that you're religious. Would you be willing in painstaking detail to tell us everything that you believe and why this is important to you, and, and would you answer all of our questions and tell us what it would do for our life if we responded to this same Jesus the way you have, and then would you show us how to receive this kind of new life? When was the last time that happened to you? Never. That doesn't happen. That's not how this works. Um, we have to go to people. We have to go to Pisidian Antioch if we want to talk to people from there. That's number one. Number two, it's not easy. In fact, I felt a little nervous putting together a talk on evangelism because it's, it's much more popular to talk about other kinds of things. Uh, we, we have a lot of fears and concerns and issues, and I don't want to impose my views on people, and I don't even know how to impose my views on people. It's not easy. This wasn't easy for the Apostle Paul. Um, it's, it's not easy to be a witness, which is why witness and martyr actually come from the same root word. There's risk involved in trying to talk to people. But isn't anything of value risky and costly? You know, one of the scariest walks that you will ever take in your life is the walk from your car to the back corner of a Starbucks where you're planning to sit with a friend and talk about faith. It's scary. And so we just need to admit that. This is not the easiest part of our faith. This is part of our faith. But it's not easy. And then number three... Even, even though it doesn't always go well, um, and that might be why John Mark bailed out on them in verse 13, but, but even though it's not easy, number three, this experience is a pathway to the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the joy of the Lord. You know, these guys did not have incredible success based on American standards. Yes, there were some people that responded, but far and away, they ended up kicking the dust off their feet. That means I don't even want a grain of sand to cling to my foot from you people. I mean, that was the opposition they experienced. But even so, it says that they left filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. There is something about trying. That's our, that's our motto in my family right now. Jessica and I, we don't feel like gigantic successes in every area of our life. So sometimes we look at each other and we're like, trying. <laughs> we're showing up still. We're trying at least. Hey, we tried, and there's something about that that invites the radiance and the life of the Holy Spirit. And it kind of makes sense if you remember these words from Jesus. In Luke 15, 7, Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. So it's almost like the act of witnessing, martyring, uh, reaching out. There's something about that act that kind of connects this pipeline from the joy of heaven into the reality of our natural lives. I've talked to so many people over the years, like church leaders 
who said to me, man, I've, I've never been very good at this, but I talked to this person the other day. It was amazing. I've never felt closer to God than I did in that moment. So, so those are my observations. We have to go to the people. It isn't easy, but even though it isn't easy, it is life-giving, hopefully for them, certainly for us. Um, even a simple fumbling attempt to talk to someone about deeper matters of life and faith brings incredible energy and life to us. So I just want to end by giving you just, just a few action steps. If we were to practice this, I'll put these up on the screen, but maybe you want to jot them down as well. But if we were to practice this this week, here are a few, a few things that I would suggest. Number one, look for and follow invitations. This right here will take away a lot of the fear of talking about spiritual matters. Instead of randomly striking up a moment, um, Barnabas went to his hometown. So he didn't decide, I'm going to go camp out on a street corner, and I'm going to accost every person that walks by, and I'm not down on people that hold the signs. I'm saying that's not how Barnabas did it. Barnabas went to a place where he knew there would be some sort of an invitation, um, and then they followed Sergius Paulus's invitation to go to Pisidian Antioch. See, listen, the Holy Spirit is already at work. Evangelism is not the great task of the church. It's the task of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in people's lives. So when you show up, you don't show up to generate a moment. You show up to discern the moment of that person's life. And then we step into the story that's already underway. It's very different to recognize where God is at work and then I'm going to start right there than to think it's all on me to cold call and, and convince a stranger to change their life and embrace my worldview and follow what I follow. That's not usually how it happens. But that's number one, look for and follow invitations. Number two, practice talking to people in general, not about spiritual things, just in general. Do any of you think that our world today is losing the art of conversation and friendliness and small talk? Somebody talked to me on the freeway the other day, but it wasn't very friendly. <laughs> we, 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 we don't, I don't think we need to be annoying people that interrupt somebody's private space. I don't necessarily love the super chatty person on the airplane next to me, but we should be friendly. We should talk to people, especially young people, especially those of you growing up on the internet, Listen, if you spend your entire time online, you're not going to know how to flirt. <laughs> you still have to know how to flirt. You still have to know how to be a conversationalist. You still have to be able to communicate the deep things of your heart that can't happen with a symbol or an emoji. And listen, I, I, I would much rather text than talk on the phone. So I get all of that. But, but practice talking to people. And so I think it will help you with this idea of, of being a witness just to simply say, hello, how are you today? Some of the most incredible moments in scripture happen through greetings that led to something else. So just practice talking to people in general. But then number three, practice talking to people about faith without any pressure to move it to a decision. Practice talking to people about faith without any pressure. How do I bring them to a decision point? If somebody is at a decision point, that moment will materialize for you. But here's an example. Um, I think it was last week, I, was, I took Jessica's car in to get a smog check. And I greeted the guy, how's it going? 
and he just let me have it of just, he wasn't having a great day and he was a little grumpy and, and a little Eeyore-ish and I, I could have let it go, but I just said, man, why, why, you do not seem like you're having the best time of your life. What's going on? And he started going down the list of what's wrong with the world, why America is becoming one of the worst countries in the world. He just, he just went off you know, this issue, that issue, this president, that, that group, all these things. And finally I said, hey, um, I said, do you have any faith in your life? When you look at all of these grim things happening around you, do you see any of that through the lens of faith? And I wasn't trying to bring him to a place of deciding about Jesus. I was just practicing talking about faith. And he, 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 he then went off on religion. <laughs> but then he said to me, he goes, I am a really good person. And he said, I, I am honest. I don't harm other people. He goes, if I died tonight and I met God, God should be super proud of me. And so again, in those moments, you don't, you don't know what to say necessarily. So don't worry about it. Don't feel the pressure. And I don't know if I said the right thing or not, but I just said to him, man, I said, I hope that's true. And I said, I tell you what, if every person on our planet could say what you said and mean it, our world would be a much better place. So, so, so how do we get to be that kind of person? Now, there was a line of cars. He's stressed, he's busy, so he wouldn't, it wouldn't have been the moment for me to, hey, hey, give, give me 10 more minutes. And, but, but there was a story happening in this man's life. And so look for and accept invitations, practice talking to people in general, and then practice talking to people about faith. In fact, if you want just a very simple question for people, what are your spiritual beliefs? We are a very spiritual country. Christianity is ebbing a bit in our country, although a lot of people think we're poised for another awakening in our day. Um, and that's current research that's happening and, and signs that are happening. But, but regardless of that, we are a very spiritual country. America is not at the top of the list of atheism, by the way. It's not. In fact, you know the two countries that are at top of the list? China and Japan, which may be surprising when you think of how much spirituality in different ways has been in those countries' history. But, but there's a lot of spirituality. So what are your spiritual beliefs? It just opens a conversation. Maybe it'll be a dead end, or maybe it will lead to another kind of a conversation. But then number four, I think this will be really helpful. Eliminate just one obstacle. This will help us in our reaching out to people. Our job is to eliminate obstacles for people to respond to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is drawing the Spirit is working. We want to clear the path. Remember, that's what John the Baptist did for Jesus. There was a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. You know, every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain will be. What he was saying is my job is to prepare the way. One of the ways that we prepare the way is to eliminate obstacles. I, I'm not a really great um, illustration kind of a teacher, but can I try one? I think, I think if you look at these cones up here, as different obstacles. If, if down over here by my mom and Pastor Don, if this is the goal line, there's a lot of obstacles for somebody moving to that place of faith. And it's probably too much for us to assume the burden of eliminating every obstacle. Think about this. You'll, you'll, you'll agree with me on this. There's a lot of obstacles. The first obstacle, first of all, is the reputation of annoying Christians. If you are creepy or judgy, or weird, people will not want to hear your message. And sometimes Christians can be all three. If I'm a little uptight, if I'm too judgy, if I'm too unrelatable, if I'm too holier than thou, that is an obstacle. So the first obstacle we have to 
It's a good, it's a good little illustration. Um, the, the, the first obstacle is, I need to let you know I'm not weird. We had a, a prayer day. I'll, I'll wrap this up quickly here. Um, we, we had a prayer day yesterday at the property, and for our connected and rooted groups, I was walking up and down the path, and there were some people stretching out on the Thompson Creek Trail, and I had my Bible, and I was walking and muttering to myself, and I thought, how weird must this look? They're going to think we're a compound. You know, there's a no trespassing sign on the gate, and I've got my Bible, and, you know, and, oh, and I, so, but we're not weird. So we need to eliminate that obstacle because that's a real obstacle for people. The, the second obstacle is, is there really a God? How, how, do, how do I believe that there's a God? That's an obstacle for people. Once you help someone realize there's a God, how do I know that that God is like Jesus? It's one thing to believe there's got to be a creator for this complex world, but how do I know that that creator looks like Christ? Well, the way I know that it looks like Christ is from the scriptures, but how do I trust your scripture? I mean, so you have this progression of, okay, this is making sense, but what about this, and what about that, and what about inconsistencies? So i got to deal with what it means to trust the scriptures. Once I trust the scriptures, my next obstacle is, does this mean I can't have sex? Does this mean I have to stop partying? Does this mean that I have to start being boring and not do anything fun like I used to do? And then if you can work through that, does this mean that I have to be weird? Now, do I have to be one of those strange religious people? See, th th these are a lot of obstacles. So I think it might help us to realize every person is already a work in progress. And you might meet somebody when they're at this point, and your job is to help remove that obstacle. If somebody is completely atheistic, no, no, no credible belief in a God, well, first of all, you got to make sure that they think you're worth listening to, so you start right here. If they believe in a God, then the next step is, how do we help them realize that, that there, there could be no greater God than what's presented in the person of Jesus? So our job is to remove obstacles. And see, that takes a little bit of pressure off. I don't have to be the perfect apologist or the perfect debater. I have to be real and normal and loving. I have to care about you enough to go to you. And then I need to be smart enough and intentional enough and prayerful enough to remove obstacles. See, all of this is probably too much for you to do in one person's life, which is why evangelism is a team sport. And listen, let, let's just make this really personal for a second. If you have a child or a loved one that moves across the country and bumps up against Christians, what do you want them to experience? If a family from New York has sent their kids to the Claremont Colleges or the University of Laverne, and they cross our paths, what do we want them to experience? And let's do for others what we're hoping others will do for our loved ones. Amen? All right, one more. Let me have the worship team. They can start inching their way back up here. Are you just like crowded at the door listening for that? <laughs> we're not very high tech with our, some of our stuff here, so that was pretty impressive. All right, number five. So let me review. Look for and follow invitations. Practice talking to people in general. Practice talking to people about faith. Eliminate just one obstacle. And then number five, practice talking to God about people. Practice talking to God about people. Um, I want to start a new ministry today. And I would like every single person in the room to sign up for it. So will you? Do you need to hear about it first? 
I'm, I'm, I'm real serious, actually. I think that we should start a simple prayer ministry along the Thompson Creek Trail. I think this is a ministry that every single person here could do. Thompson Creek Trail is gorgeous. Our girls grew up playing at Higginbotham Park, just 15-minute walk down the path. If you have tiny children, you can push a stroller. If you can't walk very well, you can at least move a few feet along a beautiful path. I think that we should start walking the Thompson Creek Trail just to pray, to pray for every person that walks by. It's not in a weird way, not in a they're talking to themselves kind of a way, just internally, prayerfully, and I think we should, we should start praying. And, and then when you get to the place where you get by Hope City Church, pray your guts out for our church. Pray for me, pray for our staff, pray for our young people, pray for our people. Um, but I was just thinking, what if we all committed to do this once a month or once every other month? If you, if you decided to go for a walk, I'm going to exercise, uh, but I'm going to also make part of it. I'm just going to pray. First, first of all, sometimes a prayer turns to a greeting, which turns to a conversation and who knows where that goes. There is a real spiritual dynamic in the world around us. And, and this isn't sci-fi. This isn't fiction. What if your prayers for a person clears their thinking? drives back demonic or supernatural forces that are at work in people's lives and allows them to have a moment of clarity? What if your prayer lifts depression for a few minutes off somebody so they can think a clearer thought? Who knows? And I think the day will come when maybe we're a little more intentional even of how do we serve people on the trail. I don't, I don't want us to become an accosting church so people dread walking by hope when they're on the trail. But, but would you think about that? So I'm not going to do a formal sign-up, but, but would you all be willing to consider that and on a regular basis? And then when we see each other, we can come up with a handshake or a, a code or something. And, you know, it, you know I mean, the Mad Madeline Skull, they lance up. They're the lancers at CBU. Anyway, that's enough. Would you stand with me?